Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you, people, uh, like a few months ago on Facebook, one night, I always screw around on Facebook, I posted a picture of a yingling and an angry orchard and a Smirnoff airplane bottle and a Jim Beam airplane bottle. And I said, if you get it, you get it. And some people, they did. They said, oh, I got knocked down. Some people said, I'm going to have one hell of a hangover. But uh, it was in reference to the song Tub Thumping, which my guest sang. But he also has a uh, documentary. Someone sent me the trailer for it. And, and it's uh, I Get Knocked Down. So he went from singing. He's in the filmmaking. He does everything. And my guest is Dunstan Bruce. How you doing, Dunstan? Uh, I'm fine, thanks. It's... Uh... It's rainy and dark here at the moment. So, <laughs> so you're like, thank God. I'm... But you have plants behind you, so it's good. <laughs> um, I want to start off, I want to talk about your the music career in Chabawamba, but I, I want to start off about the filmmaking. I want to talk about oh, yeah. why, what made you decide to do the documentary I Get Knocked Down? I mean, there had to be something that catapulted you to it. But how, did that, how did that start and where does your love of film come from? Um, this could be a really long answer. That's if fine. You want a really long answer. Um, so in about 2000, uh, I sort of made a documentary with a director called Ben Mun- Unwin uh, called Well Done Now Set Off, which was uh, which told the sort of the potted history of Chumbawamba. And we made it then because it was like just after, it was a year or so after tub thumping. And uh, we felt as though nobody actually knew the history of Chumbawamba at all. Um, and so we thought it would be a good idea to make a film about uh, who we were. Um, but that film never saw the light of day. You can find it on YouTube in sections, actually. But then, um, so, uh, then um, in about 2009, uh, having left Chumbawamba in 2005, in 2009, I uh, had the opportunity to go to China with uh, Sham 69 to make a documentary about them touring China. So I'd never done anything like that before. Um, and I just thought, I just thought, I had the confidence to think, yeah, I can do that. That should be all right. Um, and so me and another cameraman went on tour with Sham 69 around China and we made a documentary about it. And it was, uh, it, uh, it did really well at film festivals. Uh, again, that never saw the light of day. Because uh, Jimmy Percy, the lead singer of Sham 69, uh, stopped the film coming out uh, because he wasn't in the band at that time and it was his music. Um, So I then went on to make a documentary about the Levelers called A Curious Life. Um, And whilst I was making that, I, I decided that I wanted to make a film about what can you possibly do if you're a political band and you enter the mainstream, uh, which is what happened to Chumbawamba, obviously. So they, so making the Levelist film was like a, was like a, a, a good uh, practice run of trying to put a film uh, uh, together about a political a band that had politics. And so... Um, by that point, Chumwamba had called it a day as well, and I felt as though I couldn't really make the film whilst Chumwamba still existed in some form. So once the band came to an end, I thought, "All right, I'm going to go. I'm going to try and make this film now." Anyway, that was about eight years ago. 
it's taken me about eight years to get to this point of making the film. So I set off with this idea of making a film about uh, political bands entering the mainstream and can you actually achieve anything? Can you make a difference? But along the way, I met this uh, uh, this really brilliant uh, documentary maker called Sophie Robinson, who got involved in the making of the documentary as well, and she became co-director with me. Now she's a sort of proper she's a proper documentary maker, and. Um, so she taught me a lot about, you know, structure and form and all that sort of thing. I just used to come up with ridiculous ideas and then Sophie would make them happen sort of thing. So we had a lot of fun in making the film. We did a Kickstarter, raised a lot of money uh, through Kickstarter, but then never managed to get any other funding. So it took us a really long time to get the film made. But in the making of the film, we had a, we had a, we had a really good time making it because um, uh, we could do, we could make the film that we wanted to make. And as Sophie used to say herself, we used this sort of maxim that was like sort of an idea of Chumbawamba's really, is that we never, Chumbawamba never made the same album twice. You know, every album was different to the previous one. And it was a deliberate attempt to never uh, get uh, stuck in any sort of uh, um, style or groove or whatever. So... We wanted to make a film that sort of reflected that idea, so we, we just we just had loads of fun in deciding how each uh, scene could be and what could be going on in it, and uh, so uh, and so we ended up with um, uh, I get knocked down eight years later. Well, you know it's amazing, and I'm sure, and people don't understand this. You know, people see a documentary because I, I used to live in Hollywood, and I have friends who are filmmakers, and people see a documentary. And they think, oh, it's just this, uh, oh, that's nothing. But they don't understand how many, how much footage you shot. Like, they don't understand. It's like, you, you shoot everything usually, and then it's it really comes down to the storytelling. Because else it would just be a garble of shit. It would just be this and this concert. And it really fascinates me. And, you know, for you, with a creative mind, and a singer, sometimes it's hard for a create for when you're creative to get rid of stuff because it's your story but thank god because you're like oh no i want to keep that and then the, someone like you said the person you work with is like well you know that, that doesn't really put the story forward and, and and we're always we're a creative we're a child we're like a child yeah like, there, were a, lot, we there were a lot of times when sophie had said i'd go look i've cut this scene it's hilarious it's really good it's brilliant and sophie would say look that's only going to be funny to eight people there's only eight people going to understand what you're on about there and you're not making it for the rest of the band our idea our idea became that we wanted to make a film that you didn't necessarily have to be a fan of Chumbawamba to appreciate the film or even be a fan of that song you know it was just like we were trying to talk to a lot of people you know to a much wider audience and uh, and make it more than just a, a music documentary uh, we didn't just want to make a music documentary we wanted to make something that said something more than that you said earlier, you said, you know, because you wanted to see when a political band gets into the mainstream. Were you a political as a youth? I mean, how how did Chumbawamba become a political band? Because I know you're a few years older than me, and I know punk was becoming, punk was there. But how when when did you start becoming political in your mindset? As a kid, were you that way? Or, or when did you start getting that political mindset? I think it was totally punk. Totally punk. Because, um... Because there was a lot of uh, uh, people in bands that I liked, that uh, you know, like when I was like sixteen, I was a fan of the Clash. You know, I loved the Clash, and they were they were one of the bands who were who were saying uh, stuff that had uh, a, a political message. And then what happened was uh, Rock Against Racism 
um, became, an organisation uh, in the UK and uh, started doing gigs uh, uh, um, as part of like the anti-Nazi league and stuff like that. And so because um, uh, that became quite a big movement and a lot of bands were doing those shows and they were bands that I was really into. So that just seemed like a really uh, easy way to get into politics. It's like, oh, the, the my heroes are saying this. I, you know, maybe they've got a point. And so for a while I was sort of like, I, I sort of like, started to read into all that sort of stuff and thought, yeah, I get that. I totally get that. And if, if these cool people think this is good, you know, then I'm going to sort of, I'll, I'll, I'll sit up and listen, which is, which is, um, which is really formative. And then, and then by about 81, 82, uh, I started listening to Crass and, uh, other anarcho-punk bands. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the stuff that, that they were saying was also, you know, like incredibly, incredibly political and i we t- you know we as a band we were a band by then we sort of totally took that on board and started to think about how uh we could uh combine uh politics and music together in a in a in a way that would uh uh get our message across what what was the punk scene like back then i've talked to people who were young punks like james stevenson said you know if you're a punk they would chase you down the streets he said it was it was just different what what's and i'm i'm from i'm from the east coast you know punk was different here you know because we have it's just different there wasn't you know in the the whole division but what was it like being a punk when punk was you know starting to come up because i'm sure old people are like oh yeah and there's probably like the the big guys are like oh fuck these little, you know, but what was it like for being a punk and even being in that circle because you're playing? In the 70s, it was pretty scary uh, where I grew up because um, I grew up in the northeast of England in a really small industrial town. Um, And so it was very easy to stand out. And so there was a small, you know, there was a small cabal of, of punks who uh, who you sort of started to identify, you know, and recognise, and um, and so you all gravitate together, and so there's a real gang mentality. There was a real gang mentality about it, but it was like you know, it was a, it was a magnet. It, punk was a magnet for freaks and outsiders, really, uh, and and you know, and and that was so you started to find your people, and um, and because it was so other back then. It was threatening to a lot of people who didn't understand it or didn't didn't accept it or acknowledge it. So you would you would get chased and you would get beaten up and you would get you know and you would get you know you would I, I got jumped loads of times coming out of pubs or in town and stuff like that. We used to go to when I was when I was a teenager. I used to go to a club called the Middlesbrough Rock Garden, which the the sense of camaraderie in the club was absolutely amazing. But they did this thing where they they um, they started putting uh, punk gigs on on the bikers' night when it was bikers' night. So obviously all the bikers were really pissed off that suddenly there were punk gigs. So obviously there was violence. You know, there was just there just was. And then skinheads started coming to all the punk gigs, and then there was just violence. So it was really it was you know it was it was a, like a violent scene. Um, but in the midst of all that, you sort of became aware of the fact that. You know, you didn't have to be you didn't have to be Jimmy Page or Richie Blackmore to be in a band, uh, and so that that element, the creative thing about punk, was brilliant. You know, the, how it liberated you creatively was was that was amazing. 
But yeah, I remember once having a, you know, like had an imprint of a of a shoe on my forehead there, just from getting kicked in. And that. It's crazy. Yeah. It is nuts when you look back at. It. Now, how did Chumbawamba come together? How did you guys start? Um. So, so a couple of people in Chumbawamba, quite a few people in Chumbawamba from a, another industrial town in the northwest of England called Burnley. Um, Boff and Damber already had a, already had already started. Um, Chumbawamba uh, in about uh, 81 or something, 82. Um, but we, uh, when we moved into the squat um, in about 82, 83, 82, when we moved into the squat then, then it really started to, we, then we really started to take it seriously. So I met, I met Boff and, uh, Boff and Dander by putting an advert in a, in a, in a music shop in, in, uh, in Leeds. Uh, looking for musicians to join a band that I'd I'd got together, and Boff answered the advert because because it had loads of cultural and social references in, and it wasn't just a list of bands that I was into. So that sort of intrigued him. So then I met so I met him, and then I sort of, and then actually his band Chumbawamba was a lot more interesting than my band. So I just ended up joining joining Chumbawamba. But when we moved into the squad, there was just four of us. We started off as a four piece. And then he just grew and grew. Anybody who moved to the house, you know, they were like, well, do you want to join the band? And they were like, and, some, and most people were like, well, yeah, I'm not really a musician, but I'd love to, you know, I'd love to be in a band. And even to this day, Alice would probably still say that she's not, she's not a musician. And she was just like, you know, she was just a writer who fell in with the wrong people sort of thing and ended up spending 25 years in a band. So, you know, and there was, that was a, a, a lot of us were, you know, were like that. You know that was our. Um, we were we were just uh, more enthusiastic than we were uh, adept at uh, playing instruments and stuff like that. So now, when we started up, it was just about the passion of it. Now, how would you guys write? Like, what what was your writing process? Because I'm always I, I I do stand up comedy occasionally. I used to do it for a long time, and and I was talking to someone about this yesterday. How you know I can I I, I can't sit down and write. Like something will pop in my head and I'll go, oh, that's a stupid Facebook post or, hey, if I get on stage, I'll do it. And that's just the way I write. But for you guys, first of all, because you, you want to have a, a political message and, and there's ego. And anytime you have creatives in a the room, there's ego and you're going to, because there's a bunch of you. As I said, there's four, then there's seven. And you know, the person who's a quiet one's always go, well, I got this idea. How would you guys, in the beginning of your career, how did you guys start writing? Was there, did you, each of you have certain tasks or would you brainstorm? Um, no, what we do, what we would do is that we would always like decide um, what we were going to write about, what subjects we thought we should write about, or what was going on in the world. Um, really early on, really, really early on, it was like, let's have a song about animal rights. Let's have a song about us being anti-nuclear war. Let's have a song about us being against, you know, the work. Uh, you know, uh, we would just choose a topic and we would write about it. Let's have a song about, you know, um, equal, you know, like racism or sexism or homophobia and stuff like that. And so, and so different people would go away and go, right, I'm going to have a go at writing something about that. And then, um, and then we'd all bring all the lyrics together. There was about four, there was about four of us, four or five of us who, did, who, who wrote lyrics. And um, what, uh, what Boff was brilliant at what he was really brilliant at was then taking those lyrics 
and you know melding them into you know like uh, verse chorus verse chorus middle eight verse chorus sort of thing he 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 could take different bits so he had a couple of people writing about the same uh topic he could he could you know bring those two topics together and and even come up with a melody for the chorus you know so he was really good at that sort of thing so it was always this sort of it was always like a collective you know sort of process and sometimes you know it'd be like right he's put this and this together it doesn't quite work you know alice you go off and just get that to work or you know don't can you just phrase that in a different way you know and all that sort of stuff so we don't so it, it was it was all a collective process and in the meantime there were other people in the band who, who were the musicians there were a few harry was a, he was definitely a musician he has always been a brilliant musician um he stood out as being really, you know, as uh, as being a cut above the rest of us, really. And uh, uh, Boff, uh, Boff was always really, really, really good at writing, uh, you know, writing melodies and stuff like that. And so, and but but some of us, you know, like me, Damba and Alice. I mean, to be honest, none of us were singers. And so we had this thing. There were so many of us, you know, we were this collective of eight people that we wanted to do. You know, we had to. We had to find ways of writing music that incorporated all our skill sets, and you know some of our skill sets were quite small, you know. Like, and so it was like it could be like a, it could be it could get tricky at times. Are you know, thinking, right? Can you just try this bit? See if you can get this to work. Um, whereas there's people like Lou, you know, who who had this uh, background to singing in folk clubs when she was a teenager, so you know she. She had, she had a beautiful voice. She has a beautiful voice. But then she was really nervous about getting up on stage. Whereas, whereas me, Damber and Alice, you know, at that time couldn't sing to save our lives. But we would just love showing off, you know. So it was like, it was, it was, it was like a, it was a balancing act between us all and making sure that, that when we constructed a live set, you know, that we all, that people were, at, were, were not were equally involved in the whole, in the whole thing. Now, how long was it? You guys are you're writing together and all this, but how long is it till you get really serious and you say, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna do this because we can all sit there. You know, might be a hobbyist, and it, it's 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 not an easy business. You know, it's not yeah. easy. But how long was it till you guys said, all right, you know what, let's let's do this, man? It's funny because we were always really serious about being a band, and we always we always like nobody had a career. You know, we all took part time jobs to be able to help do the band, you know, and we'd, we'd um, and that went on for quite a while, but I remember there was a point um, uh, in the nineties, the early nineties, where we, where we made the decision that we were going to do it. See, we were going to do it seriously. We were all going to give up uh, what we were, uh, anything else that we were going, we were doing and we were going to start paying ourselves a really small wage to do, to commit to doing the band. And that was like that was like a really significant moment because because um, uh, it, it did feel like oh we're, we're we're taking this we're taking this really seriously now and we're trying to we're trying to be something we are you know we are, we always felt as though we were a gang and that we and that we were a, like a political band who had a lot to say and you know we used to do loads and loads of benefit gigs loads of benefit gigs you know we people would come to us all the time to ask us to do benefit gigs but then it got to a point where we were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we had to make so we had to make that decision, you know. We got a we got a booking agent, 
you know, and we were on we were on small independent label and stuff like that. So it started to feel as though it was getting see it was it was getting serious, but we but we never. But it's funny because we never we never thought that the end point would be what it was, and that was never that we never wanted that to be the end point. We never thought how we were going to have a hit single. You know that was never part of the the discussion. What we what we really what we really loved about the band was that we 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 were self contained unit, and we and it and it worked. It was like a little cottage industry, and everybody had different roles within the band. You know we all had jobs within the band, and that really paid off it late later because we treated each other equally and no one person was the leader of the band and you know like even if you hadn't written a single word or or, or composed a single note to a song you were still a songwriter on that song and that was really important for us that we shared absolutely all that sort of thing because um it always felt like it was a collective effort, and we never wanted to split that up into jobs. And you know, you get paid for this, and you don't get paid for that sort of thing. Now, now you said there, you made you made the uh, decision, quit the day jobs. We're going to do this. You're working, you're doing everything. How do you end up at EMI? How, what, what was your path to that? Because I mean, because you had you had sang derogatory things about EMI and you know it's just yeah, it's yeah. just funny but you know that's happening in America right now there was there's show Saturday Night Live this this guy they fired him because he made some comment before he got hired and now four and a half years later he's hosting next week so it's it's always weird how when it's when something's hot executives yeah. when something's hot executives always go well they have amnesia I don't remember that but how, what was yeah. what was your path to EMI? How did you guys end up on there? Let me just tell you another story about that's based on that than what you just said that, would, that we always thought was hilarious. In about 1995 or 96, we did this TV live TV uh, show in Germany uh, where we were on quite early in the day, but Smashing Pumpkins were headlining, and uh, when so by the time they came on. It was live TV in Germany on WDR. And um, we were all in the dressing room and we got told that we had to close the door of the dressing room and we couldn't watch Smashing Pumpkins walk on stage. And we just thought this was the most ridiculous thing we'd ever heard. And so and, and so they and it, so it happened. We tried to watch them walk on stage and people wouldn't let us, security wouldn't let us. Uh, and so we just thought this is ridiculous. So we got, um, so we were like, right, what are we going to do? You know, we've got to do something to like to to hook uh, uh, things up a bit. So, um, so we got Dambert, who who was always willing to do anything uh, outrageous. We got Dambert to take all his clothes off. We wrote <laughs> "punk" on his chest, really big, and uh, he walked on stage whilst pa- Smashing Pumpkins were playing. And he just walks on stage, puts his finger in the air, and he might point at the punk on his thing, and then he starts walking off. And there was a security guard comes running across and he gets taken out of the compound where, where we were playing and he's naked. He's just out in the middle of nowhere. Anyway, that went out on live TV. As it happened, Smashing Pumpkins just thought it was funny and they didn't know why we were doing it. They just thought we were, you know, drunk and that. Um, but um, after that happened, immediately after that happened, we had people coming out of our dressing rooms going, you will never be on German TV ever again. I can assure you, that's it. Your career is over in Germany. 
I mean, obviously, a year later, tub thumping happened. We were even signed. So the, the irony is we actually signed to EMI Germany, not even EMI UK. We signed to EMI Germany because we were so big in Germany. EMI knew about us. And they, they offer, when we got, when we got... Um, well, first of all, real quick, quick, why were you so big in Germany? What Was there a certain reason? Because we toured there so much. We toured there. We'd done that thing that is is basically how you get big somewhere. You just go back again and again and again and again, and you play to more and more people every time. And we just, there was something about what we were doing that really tapped into a German, you know, German counterculture which was huge, which is huge. So we were playing, Germany's got this, I used to have, I don't know whether it still does now, but it used to have social centres all over the country where they, they were run by young, politically active people. And we'd go and play them all, you know, and, you'd, and so there'd, there'd, be, there'd be community hubs for, you know, like people with similar views to us and similar ideas. So we'd be playing these bigger and bigger gigs, and they just felt fantastic. It felt like they, they all they felt like celebration every night, and so it was, so it was uh, so we built up this huge following in Germany. There was big enough for you know for people to notice. So we were like, so we'd be start to be appear. Germany, Germany in general had a much better uh, attitude towards uh, how you were treated as a band going to play there. In the UK, you get you used to get treated really, really badly. You know, it was like it was an inconvenience that you were even at a venue. But in Germany, you'd turn up. Sometimes you'd play to six people. There'd be a fridge. There'd be a six. There'd be an eight foot high fridge that's just full of of alcohol. Doesn't matter how many people are at the gig. They're going to treat you really well, and they really appreciate the fact that you were there. So we loved Germany. We absolutely loved. We did really well in a lot of northern. Northern Europe, but Germany in particular, we had, we had we had this huge following. So when when we were trying to get a record deal, um, EMI Germany were were they made they, weirdly we had all these arguments about whether we should sign to EMI, having appeared on a fuck EMI compilation in the uh, late eighties, uh, early nineties. Uh, it just seems really uh, hypocritical for us then to sign to EMI, but EMI Germany their offer um, and the and the control that they gave us over, over uh, deciding when we wanted to tour, what records we wanted to put out, how we wanted to look, how their albums were going to look, doing all the artwork, all the posters, uh, where we were going to play, all that sort of stuff. They just said, look, you obviously know how to do that. You've obviously done a really good job of it over the years. You carry on doing that. We'll just facilitate the, you know, the putting out the records and all that sort of stuff. So that relationship, that relationship really was really good, was really positive. Uh, but then we got sold back. We kind of like, you feel like, you, you feel a bit weird because you then get sold back to EMI UK. EMI UK were not interested in us whatsoever. They didn't want it. They didn't want us. They didn't want, they didn't want these, uh, you know, this bunch of troublemakers on their label. We just didn't fit into to the sort of bands that they were, they were promoting at the time. So that relationship was really awkward. But so, then in America, we signed to uh, Universal, Republic, sorry, Republic, who were part of Universal. So, and it was, sorry, go on. No, it doesn't say, you know, you're bouncing around, but you, you have success. Okay, I mean, you're doing, you got a record deal, which, you know, that's what people die for. How does tub thumping 
become and in and I know you can you can, I I ask actors this when they're on TV series I ask musicians did you think it would be a hit they always go you can never tell there's there's actors who have, I know who've been cast in these great shows and they go after four episodes it got canceled and he goes then you sign up and you end up on this crappy series for two years but you're on it because the money's great I mean in all honesty how did Tub Thumb become about and did you did you think like when you when you guys put, first of all, how did you guys come up with the song? Um, okay, we we done an al we done an album that wasn't very good. None of us really, none of us really liked. Uh, it was this album called Swinging Raymond. Nobody really liked it that much within the band. Um, and so we had to we had to make a decision about whether we were going to do another album and what we were going to do it about. And we felt as though we'd lost our way a little bit. Um, and so a couple of people in the organisation left the band, and it was all a bit shaky for a while. But then we had, to, but then we decided. Then we made a decision, a collective decision. Right, let's just do it. Let's try and do one more album and see, you know, and see if we can do it. Let's put everything into this album. What should we do it about? So we we're like, okay, let's do it about Leeds because we all lived in Leeds. Let's do an album where all the, all the songs have a connection with Leeds. Um, and so that's all we did. You know, we wrote songs that all that were in some way linked to our experience of being in Leeds, and that's what Tub Thumping was. It was uh, it was a song about this pub called Ford Green that uh, was in a, a part of town where quite a few of us lived. I think me, Boff, uh, well, me and Boff definitely lived in there. I can't remember who else. Danbert, maybe I don't know. There was a few of us that lived around this area. Where uh, this pub was, and uh, Boff used to, Boff used to uh, have a neighbour, an Irish neighbour, who is who is who, who the song is kind of about. It's about him going to uh, walking home from the pub. So that's why there's that Danny Boy bit in it. So we were like putting all these different elements together, and and I don't think that song is necessarily immediately obvious that it's you know it's got a political. It's got political content in a way because because a lot of people just thought it was a drinking song, but I, that's kind of inevitable because we were writing a song about going to the pub and about how you know it's a it was it's this community hub and how people you know have this this feeling of resilience and all that sort of thing and you know how you meet how you meet people in the pub and how important places like that are and we were trying to enca encapsulate all those ideas in a song, but the last bit that we came up with we had all the other bits but we didn't have the chorus. Weirdly, the bit, you know, the I get knocked down bit, that was the last bit that came. And in fact, we were using as a placeholder, do you know there's a Beastie Boys song, something Root Down or something, is it? I'm not get sure. Get your root down. Anyway, we we were using this Beastie Boys thing as a, a placeholder because we liked, we liked something about the rhythm of it or something, or there was something about it that it sort of worked. Anyway, then one morning, Bob just well, Bob just turned up at the studio and was like, "I've thought of I've thought of this line. I've got it. I've thought of this line." And we'd had other attempts at trying to think of what that line was. That just well, we were like, "No, nah, that's not right." But then when he came up and he goes, "Look, it's this thing. I get knocked down, but I get up again. You're never going to keep me down." And then we were like, "Yeah, that 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 could work." So we so we we called, so I recorded that you know I recorded that vocal and then we put loads of other vocals on top of it, and it and it just worked. But it was just a song on an album. That's all it was. You know, it was just like, we've struggled with this song for ages. We've got it. We've got the song. 
so we started touring. We went on tour before the album came out, and we were doing all them songs off the uh, off the album. And that song was going down really well. People were going, "That's got to be the single, that one." And it's weird, like the songs that we'd done previously, where the structures are really similar, and the ideas are really similar. But there was like a song we used to do called "Mouthful of Shit," that's structured really similarly. There's like verses, a middle eight bridge thing into a, a chanty chorus. And then, you know, a bit with Lou singing really sweetly. So it had all them elements. Um, but it just felt like with this, with this, we'd, we'd got it, you know, we'd got, we'd worked out how to put all those bits together properly. And, but we didn't know it was going to be a hit. I think that is a, that is a sort of a discussion slash argument we've always had within the band about whether it was an accident or whether it was inevitable. Uh, we would eventually have a hit, not ne- not ever thinking it would be the the uh, of the magnitude that it was, but the, whether we'd learned how to, you know, how to write uh, uh, how to write a hit single sort of thing. Now you said was... we, were with, we were obsessed with that idea because KLF had done this book about how to write a hit single, and we were just thought, oh, that's really funny that they've they've tried to turn it into a science. Now, what was the political message in that? You said there was a political message in that song. Yeah, well, it was just about resilience. You know, it was just about people's resilience. It's just about working class resilience, really, and not letting. It, it, in a way, it's like saying, it, I mean, it's basically don't let the bastards grind you down. That's what it is, you know, which is, uh, um, you know, which which for me is from, a you know, a 1960s kitchen sink drama uh, from the UK. Um in Saturday night called Saturday night Sunday morning, where it's a line in that film, you know, don't let the bastards ground you down. That's one thing I learned. Um, and so it's sort of that idea, you know, it's sort of that idea that um, uh, not only is it a thing about how important it is, particularly now, I mean, I don't think we realised at the time, but particularly now when when uh, communal places are, are, are closing down, you know, there's a, the, the number of pubs that have closed down in the UK over the last 10 years is outrageous. You know, they they closed down at an enormous rate, and so they were sort of community hubs in a way, and where you where you would meet people, and I think it's I think it's sort of in you know it's in it's it's in the authorities or the government's or you know interest for people not to be able to meet up to to share ideas and discuss ideas, and now we do it all online, so it feels it, now when I think about that song, it feels quite nostalgic that idea that you used to go to the pub to meet everybody. Oh yeah, I, I love it. I, I always say in my area, there's no more dive bars. Like I used to love the old dive bar in LA. We had this one oh, dive yeah. bar, and now it's all bar restaurants. You know, you can't. I always yeah, say, yeah. you don't you don't see like a 80 year old guy drinking a boiler maker at the end of the bar telling a story anymore. And you don't. And and it does get sad. And you're right about social media because you know people argue on social media. But as you always said, when we used to go to the bars, you know, if someone was talking out of line, you'd be like, you get punched in the mouth. And it's yeah. nothing, you know, but then you can't do that now. But it was like, you knew if you're talking, if you, and we would have, I remember I had two friends who were completely different, so far left and so far right, but we would come to my place in LA and we would hang out, we'd drink and they would talk and they would argue and I would be fascinated and they would all sometimes give up a little, well, maybe you're right, maybe you're right. And it was wonderful. But now you can't yeah. do it because online, if you're, I would say, yeah, you're yeah. stupid. So anyway. So, Tub Thumper, 
the song comes out. When do you know you have a hit? How long? I mean, all of a sudden, I mean, it changes your whole career. It starts blowing up in the UK first, right? Yeah, it was it was weird actually. We sort of knew it was going to be a hit before it was, because um, it was all based on pre-sales. Then it was only you know like you, you know physical copies, CD singles. In fact, you know it was so we knew what the pre-sale was before it came out. So we knew it was going to do really well. Um, but you but you still can't you still can't beat that moment when you hear you know when you listen to the charts. I mean, obviously that doesn't happen now, but back then, you know, you would listen to the charts and you'd wait to see where your song was in the charts. And we did that, you know, we had to, we, 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 um, we didn't know where it was going to be. And, you know, it never got to number one in the UK. It only got to number two. Um, but it was number two for about three or four weeks. It was kept off number one by uh, Men in Black. Okay. That was, uh, it was, that was number one for about three or four weeks in the UK. So, so... Um, no, go Sorry, go on. No, go. You go. Uh, no, so we so so when that so when that moment happens, it's absolutely brilliant. But we but we so we 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 were surprised. We were totally shocked because we didn't know because we didn't set out to write a hit single. I mean, I know some people do, but we 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 had no idea that that was gonna that was gonna happen. It just it just caught people's imaginations. It just came along at a really good time. I guess I don't know. And the message it's weird actually. Uh, I know this is going off piste a little bit, but it's. I've 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 thought a lot about why that song, you know, and and it's obviously because the message of it is so general, like anybody can relate to that idea, absolutely anybody. You don't have to be, you don't have to be an anarchist or left wing to understand that idea of getting knocked down and getting back up again. So it spoke to loads of people across the political spectrum. Sometimes to our detriment, where some right-wing politicians start using it as their song, you know, and so we'd have to like go, look, you can't use that song. It's not, you know, it's like, I mean, I suppose it's sort of, sort of, that sort of thing that happened to, uh, you know, that happened a lot to Donald Trump when he was using other people's songs. He's using Maybe. John Fogarty, and John Fogarty's like, no, yeah, no, no, yeah. no, That's, the song's not, no, no, no. All that sort of thing, you know, and so we had that, we had quite a bit of that, you know, like right-wing politicians wanting to use it and it's going, no, you can't use it. It's, you know, everything you stand for is everything we hurt. Um, but it was that, it was the fact that it was like so, the, the, the message of it sounds so um, uplifting and so general that it, that it worked, you know, that it worked. And so everybody could find something. You know, that song, we get, we get you know, that song gets played at weddings, it gets played at funerals. It get play, It gets played at football matches. It gets. It get. It get. It gets played at every sort of thing, every sort of event you can think of. It's bizarre. It's so, just like, and still to this day that happens. Well, I got to ask you, and it does. But I got to ask you. So, the song's popular, and then they bring you to America, and you're doing every TV show. What is that like for you guys? I know you did Letterman, Homer Simpson. I mean, you guys became. At that point, you became a part of American pop culture, and I'm I'm a pop culture junkie, and people I know are were pop culture junkies. You know, I'm, in college, we would smoke pot and watch Letterman. Okay, that was something you do because he was on. And yeah. then, you know, so what was it like when you? What was the world? Because you you took America by whirlwind. You know, what was it like when yeah, you guys came it. over? 
Yeah, yeah, it was it was it was amazing because we got chucked into that world. We got totally we didn't have a clue what we were laying ourselves in for or what that world was like. Um, and we were just getting shifted from one place to the next, you know. And then you'd be on. Rosie O'Donnell was completely obsessed with the song. She played it for weeks and weeks on her show, and then she got us on there. And I and to be honest, at the time. I'm like, who's Rosie O'Donnell? Why is she so obsessed with this song? You know, like, you just think, all right, okay, fair enough. And so you don't understand a lot of that. We didn't understand how much cultural cachet all those people had, really, because it had never been, it were, it were pre, because it were, it were kind of pre-internet in a way, in that, in that you didn't have YouTube to watch all those clips of people on Letterman or people on Jay Leno on people on Keenan Ivory Wayans, all these different people's shows that we did. We didn't know who Barbara Walters was, you know, <laughs> who's she? Well, she's got a program that's on at six o'clock in the morning or something. And we have to fly there after a gig. In fact, I think it was a gig after Phil. I think we played in Philadelphia. Actually, it was the only time we went in a private jet. What we happened? had to get from Philadelphia to New York really <laughs> early in the morning or something. And it was something like, I don't know, somebody who owns, it was somebody really high up in Universal or something. It was their private jet or something. And it was, I mean, it was just hilarious. And then you turn up at Barbara, Barbara Walters and, and, and Barbara Walters goes, so what's the, what, what, what do you mean, anarchy? What, what are you on about talking about anarchy? And Alice is like, yeah, we're anarchists. We're really serious about it. And you just think, this is bizarre. We're on there talking about anarchism to Barbara Walters and that. It's like a, just a little feature and that. And then we go and do another song. Now, now, so like that all the time. Jay Leno, he was lovely. You know, he came in the dressing room, said hello, you know, chatting away to us. And then you go on and do tub thumping and you wear, you know, and we do, we change the words to sing about, you know, uh, 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 Mumia Abu Jamal. David Letterman never came in to see us though. He's like that though. He he was always he was always in his own thing. So so what, yeah. what was your experience in America? Because you you were getting treated as stars. I mean, you know, you yeah. are celebrities. So what is that like for you guys? Who once again, people in America would have thought you were overnight successes. They would have said, "Oh, these are one hit wonders." They're, they haven't been doing it for long. But you weren't. Yeah. You've been busting your ass for a long time. But what was it like for you to live? I mean, you had to get treated nice. Yeah, we did, but but. We felt uncomfortable with it all the time. It was like, it was, it was, um, it just felt weird. Because, you know, we'd done that thing where we'd come to America and done the, you know, seven weeks in the a, in a back of a transit van touring around, you know, going, going, to, every, going to everywhere. Um, and that was amazing. That was an amazing experience. That actually was a better experience than what happened with tub thumping in a way. Because then, because now... Now, when tub thumping's happening, happening, there's stuff around you that's happening that you're not really aware of, and you've been you 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 you, you kept out the loop a little bit. Um, Universal did this thing right, which is a brilliant marketing ploy. Uh, I've got to admit, they they released their single as a limited edition single, so then you had to buy the album if you wanted the song. So we ended up selling millions of albums because people wanted that one song. And and it was before iTunes, you know, so you couldn't just buy that one song, you had to buy the album. 
And so, so in a way, it was really good for us because you had to buy the whole album, and you, and you know, it had, I don't know, ten, twelve other songs on. They were, they were saying different, you know, more, more, much more explicit political messages in those songs, for instance. But what we also had to do is um, we started putting Tub Thumping as the last song in the set because we were doing these shows where people were coming along just to hear that one song. You know, they were transient fans who just wanted to hear the song. And so we were like, right, well, we had the song quite early in the set. It was like about the fifth song in the set. Those people are just going to, you know, they, they, well, they're going to lose interest, so they're just going to go. So we were like, right, let's do the, we'll do Tub Thumping last. And so, they, and so people had to wait. So we got to do, so it was just, it, it, meant, a, it meant a lot to us that we were exposing people to all that. And, that. and I know that that album probably ended up in a load of bargain bins or second-hand shops, because, you know, a couple of years later, we were out of favour on that. But at the time, little things like that were really, you know, really mattered to us. Because, because you feel as though you've lost control a lot, a lot of the time. And you're going into stuff, not knowing what's gonna, you know, what's gonna happen. I remember, I remember me and Alice like one night going on a late night radio chat show, and it was like it was something that we'd never experienced, and we weren't warned about what it was going to be. And it were these two guys who did like a problem thing where people phoned in, but it were really heavy. It were people phoning in saying that they're being abused by their uncle or their dad or their stepdad or something like that. What should I do? And these guys are there going, get the fuck out of there. Just leave. Get out. Move. And me and Alice were like, whoa, this is a new world. It's a completely different world to anything we'd expected. And then, and then, so that would be like two o'clock in the morning. You'd leave that. Then it's, then at five o'clock in the morning, you get a call going, right, you're going to, WBCD in 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 you know in Shitsville and you're going to do a morning uh, uh, the drive what you call it you know the morning drive show yeah morning drive show and you you've got these two idiots asking you what your favorite color is or something yeah. and you're thinking what <laughs> you know so it was extreme it was totally extreme now I want to ask it wasn't you... that, that sorry it wasn't that that period was the 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 most enjoyable period of being in Chumbawamba because I don't think it was. I think the most enjoyable time had been before that when uh, when we were quite big and we were doing everything ourselves. But that time was the most fascinating time and it was the most interesting time <clears throat> and it was something that we really wanted to do and and experience and see what that world was like. Well, was it hard with some of your fans? Because, you know, I know you get a hit. Because, you know, it was funny. I, I used There used to be this brewery in uh, in Burbank where I lived. And, and it was called Golden Road. It's still around. And it started out in this little place. And then it went to this brewery. And then one of the big companies bought it for a shitload of money. And I know people were like, oh, man, they're selling out. I'm like, well, isn't that the idea? Like, you start a company, and then all of a sudden someone goes, hey, here's... Fifteen million dollars. Well, I said, I'm not going to say. I'm not. I'm not going to say no. And if they're giving you creative <laughs> control, you're not selling out. But that's always the idea. I mean, we get into creativity, or you start a business. Well, yeah, you do it from your heart. But the end game is you want to make money, and people don't sit there. So I always crack up when people go. And it happens with screenwriters. So you wrote that movie. Remember this movie? You wrote this. Well, yeah. Well, guess what? They offer me three million to do this movie. 
or I could just write this shit thing for maybe 15000 So people yeah. don't get it, but what was it like with your fans? Because I know some of them were pissed off because they thought, oh, you, you, you've abandoned your roots. Yeah, yeah. We had a lot, we had a lot of that. We had a lot of, um, you've sold, yeah, you've sold out. I think, I think part of Chumwamba's philosophy from day one had always been, we want to, we think we've got some really good ideas. We think we've got, and then we think, we're, and then, and then we start to think, actually, we're writing quite good songs as well. And we're incorporating those ideas in the songs. And we've got stuff to say. Why, why would we not want as many people as possible to hear that? Um, and that became, that almost became our mantra. Uh, and then, uh, and, and when, it, when it got to the point of signing to a major label in 97, at that point, we knew there would be a backlash. We absolutely knew there would be a backlash. Because that was just the culture that we were involved in. That people would be like, they've sold out, you know. Stuff. I think creatively, we needed to do something different. We needed a new experience. We we wanted to talk to as many people as possible. But what was fascinating about that time, and, and I only realised this retrospectively. In fact, I only realised it quite recently. Was that because social media didn't exist then, we had no way really of telling our loyal fan base what we were doing or what we were trying to do or how we were trying to do it we sent out and we sent out a newsletter once every three months or something and then other than that it was just like newspaper articles but they wouldn't they wouldn't talk about that you know so we weren't so like nowadays like if we were doing all that again we'd be tweeting every day going Right, we're going to go on Letterman. It's worth watching. We've changed the words to sing about Mumia Abu Jamal, or you know, or, or you know, whatever, it, whatever it was, we're going to do. Alice is on um, politically incorrect tonight. You should watch it. She's talking about shoplifting, or she's talking about uh, uh, the uh, LGBTQ movement. You know, wh- whatever. You know, it would be the. But we never had that. We never had that sort of access. When I showed the film recently last year. A, a screening, there was a couple there who were saying, look, I'm really glad we came along to see this film because we have no idea that that's what you were trying to do. We just thought, you've sold out, you've abandoned all your, all your fans and you've just gone off to, to you know, and you're just uh, sucking corporate cock. And I get that. I, I, I get why people thought that because I thought, yeah, how they, they, we, we, we didn't have those sort of lines of communication where you could just tell people on a daily basis what you were doing and, and how you were trying to make a difference. And it was only... Ret- so part of the reason... And that goes back to actually making the film, in a way, is to let is, is to sort of, like, let people know that, no, look, we were trying to do something. You know, we were trying to do something. So it's not only letting people know that who only know the song. It, it's, it's turned out that it's letting people who were previous Chumbawamba fans know that that's what we were doing as well. So so it served a few purposes. So with Chumbawamba, why did you leave? It was really pragmatic. It's really boring. What happened was we'd done a few albums after after Tub Thumper, and we were selling less and less albums. Less and less people were coming to see us. We made... Actually, that's maybe one of the mistakes. One of the mistakes we made was that... um, when when we had all that success, we stopped playing as often, and we we did like more 
we were doing like a lot of TV, as you know, we were doing a lot of TV shows and we were going around the world just doing TV shows or radio, radio shows and stuff like that. And we stopped touring as much. So we weren't out there as much talking to the people who would always come to see us. So when that era was over and it felt like we'd fallen from grace, that audience had moved on. Our old audience had moved on. And so we went back to playing smaller shows with less people at those shows. And we were selling less albums because we didn't write another tub thumping. And so um, and so we made this decision after a few years, right, we'll do one more album. We'll give it absolutely everything. Agree to do absolutely everything, see if it makes any difference. Uh, and And we did that for a year and it made no difference whatsoever. We did that thing where we tried to cut down on you know, we tried to make all these savings because we were losing loads of money doing this, doing it all by now. So we tried to do that thing where you uh, you look at the rider and you think, right, let's cut the rider down. We'll save money on the, on the rider. We took orange juice off the rider and that was it, thinking that that would make a difference. And then you look at your crew and you think, right, let's take less people out on tour. And then we just had massive arguments about who, who, who would be the person that wouldn't, who we would, who we would not take on tour. And in the end, we just like kept them all. So it was the same side. So there was like eight in the band and there was about six or seven crew still going on tour. And uh, and so we were just losing a fortune. So we made this decision about this album and it didn't make any difference. So then me, Alice, Danver and Harry all left at exactly the same time. But at that point, the others who could sing, they were doing an acoustic thing and they took the band off in a different direction, doing like a more folky uh, acoustic type thing and they found their own they found a new audience that that worked for about seven years i think they did that they found like an audience within the folk world and started doing you know started playing at folk festivals and stuff like that around the world uh and they and that was really successful well for i'm you, not entirely sure why that stopped but it did for you what is it like when the band stops? Because your whole identity is wrapped up in the band. It's been forever. I mean, it's something that, you know, this yeah. is what you do. What yeah. did you suffer? Depression? I mean, what was that first few months like? It's so funny because we always have to just, like, I grew up in New Jersey. I lived in on the West Coast for 25 years, LA 18 of it. When I moved back to New Jersey, even though where I'm, I'm right near Philadelphia, LA, I had to decompress. Like, you know, I didn't have to sit there and go, oh, I'm going to go an hour and a half in for eight miles. Here I go, you know, instead of saying a show's at eight o'clock, I can leave at 7.30. Instead of a show's at eight, I have to leave at six. You decompress. <laughs> for you, you just came from, you experienced something that a very, very, very small percent of people, recording an album is one thing that people don't get a chance, but having a hit People don't get a chance. So how did you yeah. adjust to, as we call it, civilian life when you're right at the beginning of the group? I was an idiot. I was a tall idiot. I was really arrogant. I thought I didn't have to. I thought, right, I've stopped doing that. I'm not going to do that anymore. And I was like, right, I'm not going to use that to further my career. I, th I feel like I should be appreciated as, as, a, as an individual, as an artist, as a creative, I shouldn't have to use the name Chumbawamba to get, um, you know, to to move on to my next thing. That was a really big mistake. Alice, on the other hand, she knew what she wanted to do before she left Chumbawamba. 
and so she she put everything in place for that to happen successfully and she used the she used the fact that she used to be in Chumbawamba and it worked really really well for her and I really that's I sort of regret being so uh, so up myself that I thought oh, I won't need to do that and I moved to Brighton around about that same time as well and I became a dad at the, around that same time so there's a lot of different stuff going on that meant that I sort of didn't do much for a couple of years. I sort of became, you know, principal, uh, what you call it? You know, I was looked after the kids basically for a couple of years. But okay. uh, once I sorted out what I wanted to do next, uh, which was, you know, the, then I started making documentaries. So now what are you going to do now? You had you the documentary two years ago. What's your focus? Because, you know, any, you know, create people who are creative they never stop i mean you know you can sit there it's like that's why comedians and actors are going till they're 80 or 90 because there's it's not unfortunate but it's it can be frustrating but it's in our heart so what yeah. what are you going to do now are you is there more films in in the future or what are you going to do no no what, what happened actually was that once I, once we finished that film i sort of felt as though i was always aiming for that to be the goal and that the films I made prior to that when we trying to learn the craft and meeting Sophie was amazing because she was so brilliant at it that I learned a lot from her about it as well but then when we finished that film I said to Sophie do you think we'll make another film together because you know this has gone so well and we've worked really well together and she just went nah I don't think so I was like why not why don't you want to make a film with me and she was like well I don't think to be honest she said, it's not that you can't make documentaries, but I think I think it's better if you're in front of a camera or on stage or something. And so, weirdly, I started writing a one-man show. So I said, look, well, I started writing this one-man show. And she was like, well, why don't you write that and I'll direct that one-man show? And I was like, oh, all right then. So I wrote this one-man show and she directed it and we went and we toured it for about a year around the country, around the UK mainly. Uh, and did loads of shows with that. And then that sort of ran its course. And then we were like, right, what should we do next? And then we were like, well, we had a friend who, we we have a friend who, who works for a production company, Brian. And he was like, why don't you film the, sh the one-man show? And we were like, yeah, okay, let's film the one-man show. But then we were like, yeah, but what would we do with that? That's fine, you know, if you film a one-man show, but then we can't, what do we do with it? And so we were like, actually... I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna incorporate the one-man show into something else. And so we started writing. Uh, we sort of had this idea for a TV series, and that now has grown and grown and grown into something that we're trying to. That we're now trying to write. And I've never written a TV series before, so it's really challenging. But we've now got this new idea that's come out of the. So the one-man show came out. The one-man show came out of the film, and the TV series has come out of the one-man show in a way. So we're doing that. We're trying to work. We're trying to do. A, we're, we're trying to write a one-man. Uh, we're trying to write a TV series that's me, an older version of me, a younger version of me, and but it's basically also uh, the the main storyline is about uh, my son getting sucked into. Uh, uh, do you know? Do you know Andrew Tate? Is he big in the states? I'm familiar with him. I'm, Joe I'm, Rogan, that sort. Of yeah, thing. I, I, I'm familiar with Andrew Tate. Yeah, yeah, those sort of people. So, th so does it? So it's about he gets he, he, my son's getting sucked into that world. So, it's a, so we want to write a thing. We're basically writing a thing about toxic 
masculinity and how you how you counter um, all that sort of thing because that's that's quite big at the moment. It is. And so, uh, but weirdly enough, it's a comedy. It is a comedy. This or, is uh, drama comedy, as you now call them. I oh, think. they're great dramedies. They're dramedies. The dramedy, yeah, yeah. So I've never done that before, but that's but like in the one man show, right? Part of the one man show is about this thing about you've got to, you've got to find your mojo, you've got to step out of your comfort zone, you've got to do the things you're most afraid of, and so I sort of took that on as like a sort of well, if I'm saying that in mean, the one man show, I've got to do that as well. So that's you know, so like I was terrified about writing writing a TV series. Sophie again has been brilliant, you know. So so we we've, we've spent time structuring it and working out what uh you know and we've got different skill sets which is what we found with the film you know it's like she's really good at, at, at storytelling i'm really good at coming up with ideas for you know what we can include you know how we can do scenes and she's really good at structuring it all together and it's sort of similar with it with the tv thing she's really good at working out you know all that three act thing or whatever or how a story you know progresses and that I'm just, I can just do dialogue. See, that's, so what's, that's, like, that's what counts. Yeah, you know, this, yeah. is, this has been great. I, I have one question here. This, is, this may have come across as an odd question to you. And I saw it when I saw the trailer, and I saw it um, on your album cover. The face with the teeth. Uh, oh, yeah. What, what is that? I, I, I want to know what that is. So, in the film, we call that character Baby Ed. Basically, that's that's the cover of the album. That's right. the cover of the Tub Thumb problem. But it was... Um, but that head, EMI Japan made us all one of those heads each. And um, when, we, when, we, when we were trying to think of how to do voiceover in the film, we were like, oh, let's not, let's not just do voiceover. Let's try and think of a different way of doing it. And I just remember one day, I, I, I found that head in the attic in my house. Uh, and it was so, it's slightly rotting and that. And I, was, I took it into the office where Sophie was and like, look what I found, found this head. And so, you know, everybody tried it on and that. And then we were like, maybe we can use it in some way in the film. <laughs> and so we decided to make, so we decided to make that character be, you know, like, it, it, it's sort of like an angrier, younger version of me kind of thing, who's always berating. He berates me all the way through the film. He's horrible to me, actually. He's really horrible to me. But, um, yeah, he just became a character in himself. And we thought it was funny that because... He was he symbolised tub thumping as well because he was like the 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 character who was on the album cover. It just felt as though it all made to us it made a lot of sense. But also, you never see that in a music documentary, anything like that. People don't do that in music documentaries, uh, nor do they give the main protagonist such a hard time in a in a music documentary. So it was ideas like that that we thought were were sort of fresh and different and new. So we had, I mean, I hope you can tell that we had a lot of fun making that film. It, it, is, it, was, it is great, and it's, uh, it, it, it's great. And it says, I was wondering that head, because I know from the album cover, I'm like, what is that head? But it's good, I know it's, it's from Japan. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to thank you for coming on, Dustin. How can people, uh, are you on social media? Yeah. How can they find you? Uh, what am I on? I'm on Instagram, it's Dunst, at Dunstan Bruce. Uh, Interabang, the band I'm in, are on Instagram as at I-N-T-R-R-B-N-G. Um, Sophie's on Instagram as so-and-so pictures, who were the company who made the film. Uh, to find. 
You can really easily find me. So I don't make it very hard. <laughs> good. So people, go find Dunstan. Uh, go find Dunstan Bruce. Go to my website, CooperTalk.net. You can find over nine hundred and ninety-five episodes on there. You can email me, Cooper at CooperTalk.net. Who's going to be your thousandth episode? I don't know. You know, I actually reached out for Alice Cooper because I thought Cooper Talk, Alice Cooper, but he he's not doing press right now. So maybe I'll reach out to Bradley Cooper. <laughs> So people, go to my website, uh, email me also, Twitter at Cooper Talk, Instagram, I'm at Cooper Talk One. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.